0: Hey folks, Randy Newberg here with another episode of Leopold's Hunt Talk Radio. Uh, Today, I'm pretty excited about our guest uh, person that we thought that we might be able to line up a year ago, but uh, between his calendar and my calendar, we just couldn't make it work. Uh, But he's in Montana fishing, and he offered to carve away some time to come and put the headphones on and talk about wild things, wild places, his lifetime of volunteerism in the conservation world. And uh, hopefully people will be interested in this one. I I know I'm interested. I have no idea where the conversation is going to go. Had a general outline, but I have that with every podcast, and it seems that we follow maybe the first sentence of that general outline, and then it Goes to wherever the <laughs> the mood of the day takes us. So, uh, with me today is uh, Theodore Roosevelt the Fourth. I called him Mister Roosevelt, and he insisted that I call him Ted. So since that, I call him Ted. Uh, and. He has been very active in so many things, both in his business life and his personal life of volunteering, that he brings just a great perspective about a lot of things. So I'm grateful that he's carved away the time to be here. And after I quickly tell you and remind you who makes this podcast possible, uh, I'll click the mic here and you'll hear Ted uh, joining in the conversation. But we want to make sure everyone remembers that, uh, Leopold, Leupold Optics, go to leupold.com. Uh, they're huge supporters of conservation, uh, public lands, access, hunting, shooting, everything, you name it. Uh, go to leupoldoptics.com, uh, check out all their great products. And when you're in the market for optics, uh, you should be looking at their stuff. And then we have Orion coolers, uh, If you go to orioncoolers.com and use promo code Randy, you're going to save 20% off what are just amazing coolers. I don't know how else to say it. I'm about ready to head to Nevada here shortly, and I'm going to be living out of four Orion coolers for the better part of two weeks. And uh, if you want one of those same great coolers, you can save 20% when you use promo code Randy uh on x maps uh we're in the process of doing our e-scouting series again uh this is a four episode series with Onyx maps about e-scouting for elk um boy uh, those of you who have Onyx know that it's one of those game-changing things to have in your hand you just uh the old saying of don't leave home without it, or how did I live without it? Well, that applies to Onyx. So go to onyxmaps.com, use promo code Randy, and when you buy any app products, their hunt app, uh, you're going to save 20%. And then we have gohunt.com. Uh, gohunt is, uh, well, right now, the the Nevada hunt I'm going on. Drew that tag, doing my research on gohunt. All the hot tags we have this year drew those based on our research using the Go Hunt Insider. So. Go out there right now and they have a 30-day free trial where you can see everything, just the whole works, all the stuff behind the curtains is there available to you. They got some great strategy articles out there right now about over-the-counter elk, leftover elk tags, how you can go elk hunting this year, even if you didn't draw a tag. And uh, the way you get that 30-day free trial is go to gohunt.com forward slash Randy and you'll get a 30-day free trial. And if you want to buy something at their gear shop, They have just this superb, uh, high quality gear in this gear shop, this online gear shop they have. And if you use promo code Randy, when you check out at that gear shop, you're going to save 10% on everything you buy there. So look at that saved you all kinds of money, but thanks for being here. Uh, thanks to Ted for being here. Um, and I'm going to hit the button here, and we're going to jump into a conversation about wild places, wild things, clean air, clean water, uh, hunting, fishing, public lands, you name it. So here we go. Well, folks, I told you we had this remarkable guest that I've been so excited to have, and we're going to jump right into this. I, I still want to call you Mr. Roosevelt. If you do that, I'm not going to respond. All right. So Call can, me Ted. I will call you Ted.
1: You, you call me Mr. Roosevelt. I look over my shoulder. Who the hell are you talking to? <laughs>
0: All right. I will do that. Um, Just real briefly for our audience, you have obviously a very interesting background. Um, You Navy SEAL. Served in Vietnam, right? Have been working in the markets, but there have been a lot of people served in Vietnam. That's not true. I have three uncles who good, yeah. It's it's amazing, The the number of people that
1: went there. And I'll digress a little bit. And I'll, uh, I just finished reading and I wrote a blurb for a wonderful book written by a woman who came from your home state, Minnesota, Hmm. Diane Carlson Evans, and. She served as a combat nurse in Vietnam and in- initially served for her first tour, our first part of her tour, in an evacuation hospital. Then she moved up to Pleiku, where she saw just appalling things, just appalling things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when she came back, uh, she was rejected and reviled by her fellow countrymen because she was a Vietnam veteran. They couldn't even distinguish the difference, and, and we went through this. The war in Vietnam was, it was you know, yeah. a war of choice, and I would say it was a poor choice. Um, and uh, then uh, she uh, tried in the face of overwhelming opposition to put a monument on the mall for the women who served in Vietnam, and there were men who couldn't tolerate that. But she finally threw wow. perseverance and she got some of the VSOs, the American Legion, the Veteran of Foreign Wars supported it. And it uh, a lot of op- opposition, but they finally got it. Um, and through that, as a result of these fights and, and doing that, she overcame uh, what was clearly PTSD, being rejected, the trauma, what she'd she's seeing, uh, and now she's, she's done something. We owe her, in my opinion, an incalculable debt. So here's a Minnesota woman that you can, <laughs> when her book comes out, you can read it.
0: I will do that.
1: Called Healing Wounds. Healing Wounds. Yeah, it'll come out this fall. Great.
0: Well, well I will look
1: for that. I, uh... So that's a that's a brief way of sort of for me just to say something about uh, all the, uh, um, the Vietnam veterans who, in my opinion, deserve collectively a lot of credit. I, I didn't
0: do anything over there, but uh, wow! Well, I you and all who did serve have nothing but gratitude for me, uh, but. Then you, you become someone who is working in, we'll call the markets, whatever term you want to put to it. An investment banker. Uh, yeah. I'm a okay. member of the pariah class. I'm an investment banker. <laughs> All right. Uh, I love the way that you honestly just say this is what it is. Um, and you anyone who reads where a lot of your work has been, both in the markets and really your volunteerism, has been for Causes of Conservation. Is that, just, is no, that, that, is that, that part that, of the... No,
1: the... that's absolutely right. And, and <clears throat> when I think about it, a lot of the younger people at the firm say, "How, Ted, how do you do it? How is it that you've been able to have this career where you can work in conservation and still be a senior banker here? And the first answer is I've been lucky. But both Lehman and Barclays have allowed me to spend uh, a lot of time uh, serving on conservation boards, whether it be the League of Conservation Voters, Trout Unlimited, the Wilderness Society, uh, but also uh, uh, the World Resources Institute, uh, the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions, uh, there are a whole bunch of them, uh, yeah. et cetera. And they realize that that's made me a better banker because I understand the economics of what's happening in the environment, why it's important, and how there's a lot of policies that we need to put in place which will result
0: in greater good economic
1: activity for this country.
0: So it'd be easy for you to make the case that conservation, uh, paying attention to what's happening with climate, with the environment, is also very good for us financially.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Climate climate change represents a huge economic risk for us. If we see the kind of damage, which I'm afraid we're going to see, where agriculture is going to be under a huge amount of stress, our ability to produce food is going to be adversely impacted, access to water is going to be adversely impacted, these are going to have economic costs. I'll give you another example. Uh, Let's take a city such as Miami. Mm -hmm. When uh, the insurance industry talks about, well, that's a once-in-a-hundred-year event or that's a once-in-a-500-year a event. We've had in the past five years four, three or four once-in-500-year events in Houston. Now, that suggests to me <laughs> that they're not one in 500. The, the rate has gone up, it's, and one in 100 years mean it's a 1% probability of happening. Yeah. When you see these one-in-a-hundred-year Events occur with more and more frequency. They're two or three or four percent. The insurance industry, unfortunately, hasn't quite. Except the reinsurance industry has figured this out. Hasn't quite gotten onto this because uh, they think that the next hundred years are going to be just like the past hundred years. That's a bad assumption. <laughs> yeah. And once they figured out that the risk is really two, three, maybe four percent, they're not going to be able to write insurance the same way. If you can't write insurance, banks aren't going to get a construction insurance.
0: So what happens to a city such as Miami? Mm. That's so much for that economic activity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the the insurance industry is driving looking in the rearview mirror rather I mean, than the that's front. That's exactly windshield. right. And it, it's
1: it's beginning to change, but hmm. it's not changing fast enough. But that's one that's one example. Uh on the other hand, there's going to be uh, an immense amount of economic activity, which we're going to have to undertake, whether it's build, building seawalls, uh, protecting the cities uh, so that they're not inundated. We saw Superstorm Sandy, what that did to right. New York City, going in, flooding subways. Some of the subway tubes couldn't be opened and weren't operative for two years. Yeah. That, that really affects. If, you, if people can't move from home to their jobs and it takes them an extra
0: hour to get to their, their work, that's an economic charge. Yeah. Well, part of it I worry is that in a lot of places we live, we like, oh well, it's so gradual. It's uh, I can write that off as ah uh, just yeah that's once in five hundred years or whatever. It the danger seems that it's so easy to ignore. But you, before we turned on the mic, you were given all these examples of why it should be so easy to observe. Yeah, well, I, I blame, to some extent, <clears throat> the
1: scientific community because they're scientists, but they're not necessarily good communicators.
0: <laughs> um, Imagine that.
1: Uh, but I, it, you know, I'll give you three, three examples. One, let's take some recent work that was done by the Woods Hole Research Center, which is one of the great think tanks in this country. Uh, they had a series of scientists over a... Uh, Probably a five-year period spends their summers in countries, including in Alaska, uh, that border the Arctic Ocean. And they determined the amount of carbon that's stored in the permafrost region ranges between a low of 1.2 to a high of 1.8 trillion tons. If you take the midpoint range, 1.5, that's double, almost double the total amount of carbon that's already in the atmosphere. And this carbon is leaking out, but at a rate we don't know. So they're working with a, a part of Harvard University to create modeling systems so they can predict how much. But we have a carbon budget that is... Uh, very small, if we get another 260 billion tons of carbon in the atmosphere, which we're going through pretty quickly, uh, most scientists believe that we will blow through two degrees. Now, two degrees, that doesn't sound like a lot in terms of higher global average surface temperatures. But if I could talk to the audience and ask them, what is the difference Between global average surface temperatures today, or let's say 25 years ago, because they've increased during that past 25 years, and 20,000 years ago at the height of the Ice Age. What what is it? Five degrees. Really? And then you had ice sheets in the northern hemisphere that were more than, they were miles thick. Yeah, right where we're sitting. Yeah, and they were so heavy, they actually compressed the earth down. (laughs) Five degrees. Yeah. So two degrees would have immense complications, but we could be looking unless we move very, very quickly at three, four, or five degrees, in which case many parts of this planet will no longer be habitable. Yeah. And so, as, as you know, I spent a lot of time in China, so I right. talk. And it's, it is interesting when I've met with members of the Politburo. The Chinese can do more. They need to do more, but they're doing a lot. They understand this Well. They understand the implications. They're trying to build more nuclear plants, and I'll come back to nuclear plants in a moment because there's a huge economic opportunity there for us, and they may get ahead of us. The opportunity is nuclear energy represents a clean, carbon-free source of energy. Unfortunately, we're using, in my opinion, an obsolete technology, the light water reactor. It's very, very expensive to build. It always exceeds its budget, We've seen this with a plant that the Southern Company is trying to build, which is a great utility, has a lot of good engineers, uh, but encounters delays and cost overruns and you know, multi-billions of dollars. So there are new technologies which uh, look like they make them out of Canada. There are companies in this country that are working on it, fourth or fifth generation, using as a coolant molten salt or molten lead. And the advantage of that is that it operates at one atmospheric pressure, not 14 or 15. So it is walk-away safe. At Fukushima, as you remember, Mm -hmm. when they lost access to outside electricity, there was a concern that the whole reactor would get too hot and you'd have a China syndrome. Right. With a molten salt... Uh, which we haven't built yet, but the engineering prototypes where we are strongly indicate it would be walk-away safe. You had, we'd lose access to... And it operates at one atmospheric pressure. Just let it cool down, yeah. which it will. And we believe they will cost much less, and we can build small modular reactors. Anyway. And so the Chinese are already doing the that? The Chinese will have a prototype up in 2021 Now, that's going to really shock. We could do this, but we don't have a commitment, the willingness to invest, and and sometimes I express it this way. As a nation, we've become very selfish. We won't invest in infrastructure. We won't invest in broadband. Why is it that large parts of rural America don't have access to broadband? Now... You, you probably remember uh, your father talking maybe about the Rural Electrification Agency. Mm-hmm. We would not have had electricity in most of rural America prior to World War II if the REA didn't exist. One of the great success stories where the government really helped and got things done. And I would argue that had we not been able to take those farm boys out of Minnesota, out of Iowa, because they, their their labor could be done by electric machines, milkers, and things of that sort, it would have been a lot harder for us to fight World War II.
0: Where would the men have come from? Yeah. <laughs> well, so as somebody who, I don't really care about politics, but I care about politics. In other words... I I used to say I was party agnostic now I'm anti-party and I try to stay very dialed into what's going on. What I don't understand is how we as a society that we say we're enlightened and educated and smart, how we can be so either purposely uh, in denial or ignorant of so much of what You just talked about what we talked about before we turned on the mic. And why do we not have the resolve to do the things that we need to do? That's a really good question. I think, I wish I said, I could
1: say I know the answer. (laughs) But I I don't know Uh, the answer. But I think it's a number of things. One of which is that as a nation, we're surprisingly poorly educated. I'll give you two statistics to perhaps uh, demonstrate that. 25% twenty five percent of Americans think that we live in a solar system in which the sun goes around us now that's a pretty easy thing to demonstrate that that's not true twenty five percent yeah and here we border on on religion uh a little bit um, uh only 48% believe, of Americans believe in evolution. It believe that we're descended from animals that preceded us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, science and faith, I think, can be separated, but it, it's, it's, it's not working. And it's interesting, I find, that the uh, Catholic Church has long been able to separate science from dogma. Mm-hmm. And they have no problem with evolution. Uh, and as a nation, we're uncomfortable with science. Hmm. Uh, We see that uh, in the debate around climate change. That is, if if you're uncomfortable with that science, to be honest, if you think I don't really believe in it, uh, although now the percentage of scientists who believe in it has gone up uh, from about ninety seven percent to about ninety nine point eight percent, it's it's amazing how few the outliers are now. Because it's just the scientific evidence is just overwhelming. Uh, but if you disagree with the, with uh, the vast majority of the scientists, you can't say oh they're wrong without at least coming up with a theory that accounts for all the facts you can measure. We know that global average surface temperatures have increased. We know that the seas are rising. We know that glaciers uh, on land masses are melting. We know that Greenland is melting. We know that Arctic sea ice is melting. What accounts for this phenomenon of global average surface temperatures increasing? It's not the sun emitting more uh, watts. We can measure that with great precision. It's not the core of the earth getting hotter. We know that's not true. You have to come up with a scientifically plausible theory which account or, which accounts for all the phenomenon that you can observe and you
0: can measure. Yeah, and uh, it's right now it's overwhelming that... Yeah. <laughs> and I don't care where you live. Uh, and it yeah, expresses in it. a lot of different you, things. You
1: see it, uh, uh, and, and people... Uh, who hunt and fish see it. Mm-hmm. We see it in, in trout streams in Montana where the waters are, you, you, uh, the uh, fish and wildlife and parks have to close off the water uh, when it gets too hot because we don't want to put more pressure on the trout.
0: Yeah. I mean, we see it in the availability of species. You look at certain places in Alaska uh, where indigenous cultures have lived on caribou yeah. for however many thousands of years. And now, they're struggling to find caribou. And some will say, oh, predators. Some will say this. Some will say that. It's pretty overwhelming if you want to read the evidence that it's because of a changing situation much bigger than just a localized, oh, there's some wolves here that some would like to say that's why. Yeah, no, and,
1: and you, 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 Alaska's interesting because we have one of the things that as, as Americans... We owe an incalculable debt to many forebears that went ahead who set aside vast amounts of public lands and educated us to the value of our public lands. And we need to continue to educate Americans, uh, urban Americans particularly, about the value and importance of our public lands, the ease and access that you can have to them. Uh, And yet now... We are under-investing in our national parks and our public lands. The maintenance backlog in our national parks is probably fifteen billion dollars. Yep. Now, if you really sit down and talk to Americans, say, "Would you, if you inherited a house from grandmother, would you just allow it to fall into a ruin and not bother to uh, put a new roof on it if it needed a new roof?" No. Yeah. We're, we are being un- we are being unconscionably uh, derelict and. Are, our obligations to act as stewards for our
0: children's children. And so that gets back to, and what our audience is probably hoping that we get to is well, I agree with that. What can I do about it? How can I, as somebody who lives in Montrose, Colorado, or Prescott, Arizona, or Wenatchee, Washington, or Bozeman, Montana, or san francisco or new york i I, no one cares about my opinion anymore well the power
1: of the ballot box is
0: enormous (laughs) uh and
1: you have an obligation to make sure you understand how your congress representative voted how did your senator vote and if they vote in ways that don't make sense uh vote for somebody who's going to behave differently. But everybody should get engaged in politics to some extent, I think. Yeah. Uh, because you, then, if you don't, you get the government you deserve.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, uh, no doubt. And, and, and now you look at our government, uh, and I'll be pretty harsh here. Uh, we have an administration that treats its public lands... With three words: rape, pillage, and plunder. And let's get as much resource out as fast as we can, and damn the consequences for future generations. Yeah, and that's. And I'm a moderate.
0: I'm a Republican, but a moderate one. So I'm unhappy with that. No, I and I that that what you bring up there, Ted, gets me to a point of somewhat confusion, where in today's world we feel if we vote for person A we have to accept everything Person A does. That for some reason, we're not able to pick up the phone and say, you know, I don't agree with that. It's like we've divided into such this team or that team that my team leader that I voted for, I I, I can't criticize him. If I were to, to, to say something, oh, that, that makes me a bad teammate, or however people look at it, whereas... Anyone who listens to this podcast knows that when it becomes Randy Newberg unfiltered, I'm an equal opportunity supporter and I'm an equal opportunity abuser. Uh, that, that's uh, a,
1: Randy, that is a great way of looking at it. And I'll try to quote as best I can um, uh, the old lion who once said, The president is like any official. Uh, government official uh, of whom there are numerous ones albeit he's the most important one but whenever a government official does well he or she should be praised when they do badly or poorly they should be criticized and that applies to the president as well as every other elected official so when a president does badly he or she should be criticized they are not immune
0: from criticism yeah and I will use my platforms to support somebody who they say, well, how can you support that person? There's some out there in the weeds hippie. Or I'll criticize somebody who, well, you know, that person's good on guns. You know, you shouldn't be picking on them. My grandma would say, you've mistaken me for someone who gives a damn about your hurt feelings. Uh, (laughs) Good for her. So I I kind of live by that creed. Uh, But when we get into these things about public lands, about the obvious science and the obvious, just what we see in our daily lives of how things are changing, a a lot of us are trying to figure out, why is it that our elected leaders that we thought told us they understood some of these issues or said they held these as priority. When they go to the state legislature, they go to D.C., somehow uh, the puzzle gets reset. And I, I think a lot of people at this point in all of the change and dynamic, uh, dynamic change that we're seeing are struggling to find out how, where's my power in this? Where, where's my say? And it's good to hear you say, it, it sounds like a civics lesson, I know. Well, but, but, but it is a civics
1: lesson. But, it, but I, I, I talked a little bit about getting involved in politics and what can an individual do? I think there are a couple of things that as a nation we need to focus on. One, we have to have genuine campaign finance reform. Uh, and we've got to take the money out of the pol- out of out of politics the extent that it that it is, um, and we're also doing uh, changes where we're having ranked uh, voting, which mm-hmm. California is putting into place. A, a jury's still out on it, but I think that's going to work. That's that's uh, that's good, and that decreases the partisanship. But if you take the money out, uh, you're going to make. And the other one, which is clear, we have to get rid of gerrymandering. Yes. And gerrymandering just <sighs> exacerbates uh, the partisanship. And we see before our eyes we have excessive partisanship, and the parties won't work together uh, anymore, and we treat. Uh, the other party, as if they 're visitors from another planet <laughs> they 're yeah. aliens they 're right. them you yeah. know, you know we, we and, and that that is immensely destructive, and so yeah. every man, woman, and child in this country should be concerned about it, and we need it we need and they 're they're increasingly and it also uh, if you have campaign finance reform, which has a group that I'm working with called Represent Us, I think, has got a good, uh, good idea. It's very simple. If you hold a position where you uh, regulate uh, or oversee the activity of any sector, you cannot take a financial contribution from that sector because that is corrupt. Right. You're not saying you're limiting their speech. You're saying that is a corrupt activity. Yeah. The Supreme Court can't overrule that. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, unfortunately,
0: the uh, Citizens versus United was uh, a horrible decision. A train wreck. I, and a lot of people don't understand how that one decision and gerrymandering affect some of the things they see today. Gerrymandering is, let's draw these districts so that we know this person's going to be safe of whatever side. And so you end up with the most partisan people emerging from both that primary and then that general election, where they don't really have to represent a group of people. The the mix of who their constituents are, are so far, so heavily slanted to this side or that side, that they can be whoever they want. And it it does not result in a a solution of compromise. And and, and it,
1: it, it feeds on itself, because each district is represented by a more extreme right, or left-wing person, yeah, and those people, you know, aren't going
0: to be able to get along with anybody from the other party. No, it's, no. Does this mean that you're going to start the Bull Moose party again? Well, it, it, you know,
1: I, I think the lesson of history is that starting third parties <laughs> is hard.
0: <laughs> that is the lesson of yeah. history, but it is nice to see some independence, uh, mostly from rural states, why, yeah. why is it that low population states have a higher number of independents in Congress
1: than urban states? That that's a really interesting question, and I think um, I'm not sure I have an answer of that. I've got I've got to think on that. Um, partly because you've got, um, if you look at a city such as, uh, or it takes a state such as New York, mm-hmm. uh, it's pretty clearly. Uh, if you look at New York City and the suburbs, that's pretty much hardcore Democrat. Upstate is is Republican, mm-hmm. uh, uh, very, very uh, Republican, and the uh, uh, Republicans are going to have a huge disadvantage in the state of New York as a result of the tax bill that this administration passed, really? because. For the simple reason, they said we're going to put a cap on state and local taxes, mm-hmm. so that how is a Republican in that state going to have, be able to win statewide when everybody knows because we New York and where I live, we pay a lot of taxes, but yeah. we've made that decision we 're going to pay a lot of taxes. and uh, as a good friend of mine. Uh, whose name I won't mention, but I'm sure you all know, <laughs> when I was speaking in Wyoming about this topic, he said, I don't want to subsidize uh, the profligate spending in the, in the blue states. But I did point out that most of the red states get more uh, subsidies from Washington than do the blue states, <laughs> so that didn't quite fit his... Uh, but he, he really... Why, why should I subsidize with a tax deduction?
0: Yeah. Uh, uh as a CPA I could go into a long dissertation on yes, uh, yeah. tax policy but we did, the audience doesn't want to hear that I'm sure Well uh, everybody's interested in their taxes Yeah Um you you brought something up though it's about the responsibility of citizens and on Tuesday I floated the Yellowstone River with a person he's 84 uh most people don't know that south of Livingston there was going to be a dam in 1978, yeah. the Allen Spur Dam, was going to flood the Paradise Valley all for 38 miles. It would have been a 320-foot dam. Uh and he worked for Fish Wildlife and Parks at the time. And he and his 26 biologists got that dam overturned, even though the president of the United States, the Congress for all the energy companies, uh, coal companies, everybody wanted it, and uh, we were interviewing him for this film we're doing, and I just had to ask. And I've known this person for 30 years. I'm like Jim, how how were you able to do this? This was David and Goliath on such a yeah. large political scale. And he smiled and he said, "You know, the final judge of all of this." is the active citizen the people who stand up and speak get to be the judge of what they really want he said that in the dark corners you will have the the fringe operators who don't want the public to see he said we decided we're bringing this to a transparent bubble right out here in the open and let's let the public Decide if they want a dam on the longest undammed river in the lower 48. Do they want the Yellowstone River dewatered from, by the time it got to Billings? He said, we lucked out. Montanans have always been very, very active in their, what expressing what their values are when it comes time to vote. And a lot of people realize this probably isn't a good idea. And so he, it was his way of saying that, Without active citizens, and he talked about this little lady. I've never met her, so I don't know if she's little, but this lady, Miss Clark, who lived on an island on the river. And she, back before internet, and you could do email, you had to actually write a letter and you had to pick up the phone. He said she was one of the greatest advocates he had in his cause, where every governor, she would write the governors of Montana and Wyoming, every senator, every congressperson knew mrs clark wow and he said if i had more mrs clarks that battle would have ended right away yeah it took us two years but we still won and so it gets to the point you were you were mentioning mentioning earlier about we kind of get the government or the outcomes we want or or we deserve if if we don't become active and so i think about every landscape in america that we find remarkable has some story like the Allen Spur Dam. Somebody stood up and did something at a time when it was probably uncomfortable, it was probably a very daunting challenge, and it was probably quite inconvenient.
1: And it took a lot of, but, a lot of courage. Yeah. I mean, you're going to have to speak up against people who were your friends and who didn't yeah. necessarily agree with you and thought about all the jobs, which would have been temporary jobs. And
0: yeah. And, good for
1: Mrs. Clark. Yeah. And, for Miss Clark.
0: Her. Yeah. And so Jim says, he, he says, I know this is going to sound like an echo chamber, but it was all in the name of energy independence and in the name of commerce and jobs. I'm like, yeah, man, it seems like I hear that about every five or six years. Oh. So here we are now, you know, anyone who fishes the Yellowstone to even think about. yeah, the, oh, that's a, the, And, and, the, and we, we
1: were seeing another version of the round that's being pushed to, uh, to open up the coastal plain of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Mm-hmm. And I had a long conversation uh, with a the then Speaker of the House about why this made no sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was uh, brutally honest with him, uh, I think. And I explained, Mr. Speaker, I, the seat that I occupy at Barclays tells me with absolute assurance that the oil companies don't want to drill there now because the cost of the oil will be too expensive. Uh, go back and read the article that the Lance Ryan, who is was, was the CEO of ConocoPhillips, wrote, we're going to drill in the Permian Basin. We're not going to drill uh, offshore. We're not going to, go to play where the oil is expensive. We have to be able to get oil that's going to get to us at under $50 a barrel. There's no way you can extract oil today there. And I said, so you're talking about lease payments that are going to reduce the budget deficit uh, uh, by $500 billion, uh, and if it's more than... Um, uh, you you have add another 500 billion dollars to it, the budget deficit over 10 years will be over the amount at which point the Democrats can filibuster, Mr. Speaker. This is a Ponzi game because they do not; those revenues don't exist. They could exist, and you're opening up for the destruction that I described, um, an experience I had where I'd been trying to get up there for a couple of days from Denali. And because of bad weather, the small planes couldn't get up. And I was traveling with somebody who was much smarter than I was. He said, let's take a commercial flight to Prudhoe Bay. So we got up to Prudhoe Bay, and we went in the the cafeteria. You can go in and pay for a meal. And I must admit, we are a clever species. When you see what we did there, but the amount of sort of destruction, but we got a lot of oil... And then uh, eventually, uh, flying with an uh, incredible bush pilot at 10 p.m., he drops me on a gravel bar on the Congregate River, which is the easternmost river uh, in the uh, uh, Arctic National Wildlife Refuge before the Canadian border. Okay. And people were wondering where we'd been. We couldn't communicate with them because they were out there. So we got in, we had a few beers, we were tired, went to bed probably around 11, 30 or 12. About 2 o'clock, I was awakened by an unholy symphony. Click, click, click. Uh, uh, uh. Meow, meow. What on earth is this? So I got myself out of the sleeping bag, Part of the, uh, uh, the uh, 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 opened slightly, and the cow caribous were coming through with their calves. So I got, stood outside the... Tent didn't move, and they came back. They were, you know, almost brushing me. (laughs) And every cow made a strategic decision. She would decide to cross the congregate where it was wide and braided and shallow or where it was very narrow but deep and swift. If they chose the latter, her calf inevitably drowned. And it made it clear to me how harsh this environment was, yeah. uh, that, uh, this migration which has gone over for tens of millennia uh, and represents the sustenance for some of the native groups up there, and I'll return to that in a moment. If we muck around and start putting up drilling platforms, it will be harder for them to migrate, and they need to come out of the hills because the mosquitoes get so intense. They need to get where the sea breezes, and they can, they can come out and there's uh, uh, enough food for, for them. And if you think you can go in and muck it up and, and it'll be fine, your knowledge of natural history is negative. And you have, particularly with the Gwich'in, people whose culture depends on the caribou and their whole life and their whole culture is around it. So we as a nation, when we say we're going to drill there, we're guilty of cultural genocide. Our culture is better than yours, and there's no difference between that behavior than what the Taliban did when they blew up the, s- the statues of the Buddhas in Afghanistan or the way we're treating um, Bears Ears or Grand Staircase National Eskal- Escalante, where there are incredible natural resources, uh, na- natural um, cultural items and you can see pictographs and petrographs it's it's amazing what's left there and anybody with an eye can see this and some of the uh uh little ruins that are that are there it's just it's it's it's, uh, it's just spectacular and now we're saying oh it's not worthy of protection right yeah, that, yeah. The, the, the 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 hubris that's associated with that
0: is appalling yeah and uh For me, as a student of conservation history, it's like we have to have some of these same lessons thrown in our face every 20 or 30 years. So much of what we fight about today seems like, didn't we cover that 30 years ago? I remember when I was 20, I thought we already decided we weren't going to sell the public lands. Well, no, no, we're gonna just give them to the states, and it's like all uh, for whatever reason it never goes away. A good friend of mine, Hal Herring, just wrote an article, and he said this attacks on public lands is like Rasputin. You know, you can poison him, you can throw him in the frozen river, that's you a, can. And, and a
1: great that's a great line. It's he, like he, Rasputin. He just keeps he keeps coming back. Yeah, and uh, uh, one, one book that I would recommend for. Uh, uh, your audience to read is Bernard DeVoto's uh, The Western Paradox and he describes after World War II the incredible attacks that were on our public lands, we're going to privatize our national forest, etc. And he single-handedly by writing in Harper's Bazaars wrote uh, piece after piece uh, and really protected uh, there was this immense desire to take away our public lands and privatize them. And we have to fight that, and we're always going to have to fight that again. Greed doesn't die, and if somebody <laughs> thinks that they say, "Oh, well, I can make
0: some money out of this. Uh, well, I often, and people probably get tired of hearing it on this podcast, in my mind, the public lands of America are the greatest concentration of undistributed wealth on the planet. That's a
1: great line, Randy. I really like that. They, they are, uh, uh, And when you think about what are public lands, no other country has anywhere the degree of public biodiversity in public lands with the range. And you think about you go from let's say the Arctic wildlife uh, the, the Arctic National wildlife uh, 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 Reserve, and you go down to Key West or you go down to the the, uh, Big Bend, uh, Mount Desert, where else do you find the variety of landscapes and the variety of... uh, And sure, in Africa, you'll have some great uh, megafauna, which globally we need to protect, but we have polar bears still, hopefully they'll still them, to uh, Key Deer and Key West. It's amazing
0: what we've got. Yeah, and so for me... I tell people, when you have this as, I don't care if you want to call it birthright, part of your, one of your inalienable rights as being an American right up there with life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. You need to understand that there are people, back to your point that greed is part of the human condition and never goes away. You better be vigilant and you better accept that if I want to keep this and I want to conserve it and I want to have it for the next generation, I'm going to have to, stand up and be counted when the time comes.
1: That That's so true. And I love, I love the phrase, the greatest concentration of undistributed wealth. What uh, a great idea. It, I love that way of expressing it.
0: Well, that's just growing up as a snotty-nosed kid in a logging town in northern Minnesota with public land out my back door. When but my, you brought
1: deeply rooted values that came with you by being exposed to what the outdoors is, what happens. And somehow or another, as a nation, we've got to make sure that we get more of our urban youth on our public lands. Yeah, And it would be a great job to uh, something like the Student Conservation Association, which takes high school students and, and uh, college kids, where they may have had a class or two in biology, but high school students who are taught how to work in our national parks and do a lot of valuable service, we should take that program and multiply it a thousandfold because we are educating uh, future generations of stewards. And the number of people who graduate from that program and end up going into public service so they can help take care of our public lands is immense. And if we magnify that program, they could go back and become... Uh, not necessarily uh, working for the Department of the Interior, Bureau of Land Management, but then at least they would become ambassadors
0: and advocates for, the for their her- heritage. Yeah. Uh, for me, I, the why on my, my, all of my whiteboards, if we would have done this podcast over at my film office, the why is to promote self-guided public land hunting and create advocates for that cause. And creating advocates is a lot of fun it it's like this mischievous i get up every morning and almost like oh i wonder what i get to do today but boy you get a lot of hate mail in the process and that's why i always say conservation has those three points i mentioned earlier of it's hard it's uncomfortable and it's inconvenient i get my share of hate mail where people it's uncomfortable for someone you respect or someone you've had of a relationship with to say you know what you're an idiot randy that's just BS. I don't believe that climate change stuff. Or, I—they're not going to sell these public lands. Or, yeah, who cares? Maybe we should get rid of these public lands. It's, yeah, I've, I accept that that's part of my daily life. But for the average person who I'm hoping stands up to be counted, there—that's a lot more uncomfortable for them.
1: Well, our, our public lands are, you know. Uh, and you go in, go into it, it's immensely therapeutic and, and being able oh. to go into it. And uh, I had a first, the, the first time, I guess it was after my second tour in Vietnam and I was a little bit sort of trying to put all this together. What was I going to do? And I had a little bit of time and I went off and, and went into the Sierras and sort of just by myself for a while. I so loved that. Then I went from uh, being in the Navy, I worked in the State Department for a couple of years Fell in love with an extraordinary woman who's still my wife. How she put up with me is beyond, <laughs> beyond me to, to grasp. And where did we go on our honeymoon? We went back to the Sierras. And her father, two weeks before uh, uh, we uh, were getting married, she said, Ted, you know, Connie's never gone camping. Are you sure you want to take her to the Sierras? Never crossed my... She wasn't thrilled about keeping in our double sleeping bag, a small bottle of uh, our sourdough mix, but we had great pancakes, and we baked a little bit of bread, Uh, and
0: Connie's been camping
1: ever since, and she's probably willing to rough it more than I am
0: now. (laughs) Uh, Well, tonight when we have dinner and my wife Kim tells you the story of where we went on our honeymoon, you'll find it quite interesting uh, right here in Bozeman. Uh, We came here for our honeymoon in 1989. And after a week of great fishing on the Madison River, on the way home, she turned to me and said, I'm moving here. you coming with? I'm like, honey, we just got married. I already got the ultimatum. But when she wasn't looking, I was doing this fist pump like, yes, mission accomplished. (laughs) 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 But the point of that is, it was public lands. We knew we wanted to live in a place that had this what, what we enjoy here, not just in Montana, but in this country. This happened to be the place that, that met the kind of experiences we need and our lives are connected to public lands and conservation in a way that if I didn't have these public lands, if I wouldn't have had public lands growing up right out my back door, I would not be a hunter. I would not be a, an angler. And I certainly wouldn't be somebody who uses their platforms to advocate for conservation, clean air, clean water. Uh, without these lands, I, I just wouldn't have that. And I think that's the case for a lot of Americans. Uh, the, the,
1: these lands are it's just an incalculable gift. I mean, it's amazing what we have. Uh, and uh, you asked me at one point when we were just talking and exchange, you know, places that I love to fish. Mm-hmm. Fishing on the Yellowstone during a, the salmon fly hatch Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I mean, that's just, it's just, it's unbelievable. Or going up to a, a tiny uh, uh, little spring creek, big spring creek in Lewistown. Yeah. It's hard fishing. You got to do everything right. They're spooky. They've been fished hard. But going out uh, in, the, in the evening and at, 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 at dusk, and putting a grasshopper fly close to the bank, and having a hungry brown just wham! <laughs> you know that's uh, that uh, that's that's living.
0: Yeah, that well, for me, I I just can't imagine an America without public lands. Yeah, um, uh, it would be we would impoverish
1: ourselves needlessly. Yeah, because we can have our public lands, uh, and as our population increases, which it will have to, that's yep. inevitable. Yep. Um, uh, we're going to need our public lands even more. And their therapeutic benefit for them is just a, is amazing. Yeah. And
0: uh, you live in New York. Um, maybe that's probably where you have to live for your job, I suppose. Uh, my family and a lot of the people here in Montana, my family in rural Minnesota who are, loggers out here there's people on the landscape who live off the land and sometimes it's public lands uh they there's a growing feeling that urban america views rural america as almost a colonial empire uh you know produce our natural resources produce our fields produce our whatever we need but you know don't bother us with with telling us how it should you know they they feel that there's almost this you know, colony-empire kind of relationship that nobody wants... They, they want me to be out here on these lands providing them what they need, but when it comes time for me to give some input and some perspective, nobody wants to hear that. Uh, that That's their feeling. And whether or not it's true, the fact that they feel that way tells me... It, we, we've got some issues there's
1: um, no question we've got issues and, and one of the benefits that uh, i think i've enjoyed is um having a ra- having had a ranch and really getting engaged in raising cattle with my partners uh uh and understanding the ranching community i have an immense amount of respect for the western ranchers they're just terrific uh 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 people and uh um, they uh, have um, educated me about their culture, what they do, and some of them are incredibly good stewards of the land, and mm-hmm. they are very knowledgeable about it. And they're they're, they're doing doing uh, a lot to protect the land. And sometimes uh, there is a degree of uh, uh, arrogance on the part of the coastal people, which I guess I'm now part of because that's where I live, and. They don't know anything about what it takes to be in production agriculture Mm -hmm. how damned hard it is and how hard you work. And one of my favorite stories about this is that uh, a group of people from... uh, Uh, Fish and Wildlife Service from Washington who were sort of had become more bureaucratized (laughs) were riding on a rancher's place and they were chewing him out for how much damage his cattle had done to some of the riparian area. The rancher kept his mouth shut. There were a couple of people from the state's Fish and Wildlife. They came up to another place and again it was all chewed up. Finally the rancher turned around to the state guys how many cow tracks did you see back there? None. Those were all elk. <laughs> and they didn't Oops. know the difference. Yeah. And, and uh, that happened. And we're going to see something that's going to be interesting, I think, which is it looks like BLM is going to move its headquarters out of Washington yeah. as a result of what uh, Senator Gardner has, has been pushing. Mm-hmm. That could be a good thing, I think, making getting people closer. Um, and in any conversation... Both sides need to learn how to listen. Yeah, and as a nation, we've forgotten
0: how to li- how to listen. Yeah, as, um, as my grandma would say, I, I I quote my grandmothers a lot. I I was so lucky to have these wonderful grandmothers, but she would say, "Son, you need to quit broadcasting and start doing a little receiving," which means <laughs> you're talking too much and you don't know what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, but, yeah there, there's there's a there's a uh, there's a huge amount of that and. Uh, uh we've we 've need to uh, uh and sometimes <clears throat> there is built up animosity that is not justified yeah. uh, and uh uh you you look at uh, some of the decisions that have been made to protect lands that didn't private and there are good jobs that are coming out of that mm-hmm. uh, and you look at the na- national park and we need to probably listen to more people. Uh, and around Yellowstone, about because lots of tourists come in. They don't know very much, and I'm sure that they they provide some some income. But they they need to be listened to and, and treated with immense respect. Yeah, and we've forgotten how to do
0: that. Yeah. Well, I I just worry that if the local people, and I'm not saying they have to have all the say, but if they're having this feeling that no one really understands my story, just Give us the, the commodity we need. Uh, that that seems like that's not a path that is in the long term. No, that's, best, that, that's not going to work. And, and if we get
1: get get divided, and that's one of the reasons that, amongst others, that I, 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 I really like the land and water conservation fund. Oh, me too. Because a lot of that can be given to individual areas. It can help uh, uh, build a little park where a city doesn't have it, and that you know they're getting some benefit. Yeah. From a, de- a depleting asset. So let's reinvest some of that the de- proceeds from that depleting asset to make uh, life better for
0: uh, both urban but also rural areas. Yeah, and we're spoiled sitting right here in Bozeman, Montana. Land and Water Conservation Fund, where you mentioned, is from a depleting asset. It's the offshore oil and gas royalties that go to the fund. Uh, we here in this part of the world have been an immense beneficiary of the Land and Water Conservation Fund. And people don't quite understand it. I think they believe, oh, well, the landscape was always this way or that there was always access here. Now, LWCF created millions of acres of access, whether it's by purchasing in holdings, easements, the Forest Legacy Program. It is such a wonderful program. I'm happy to see it extended. I wish I could say, okay, Congress, now it's extended, Let's fully fund it.
1: Yeah, that's so, the next step. We got, we've, got it, we've got to get it fully funded. Yeah. And, so, it, uh, and that, that gets to sort of a uh, uh, you know comment I made earlier that uh, we've been selfish. We've got to learn how we reinvest in America. Uh, the uh, uh, president uh, is worried about our balance of trade. He's worried about intellectual theft. Well... Uh, Changing the value of the dollar is a dumb idea. Uh, We get immense benefits because we are the world's reserve currency, and uh, people want to store it. It holds the value of the dollar at a higher level than it would be otherwise, given the budget deficits that we're running, and that's an immense advantage for us as as a nation. But what we need to do is spend money educating Americans so that they will get jobs that are going to be created in the 21st century. Uh, we need more community colleges. We need to ed- improve dramatically the quality of our public education. In the 1900s, 1920s, 1930s, American high schools were the envy of the world. Who would say that about them today? Now, is there any reason we can't make them the envy of the country again? We can, we can address these problems. And we don't want to waste our citizens by not giving them a good education, and an education that will allow them to compete in an increasingly complex world is something that we owe to ourselves. We need to do that. We need to invest in infrastructure. So uh, we need to how to how to figure out again. I'm one of my little hobby horses, which may offend some people.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> That's all right. There, you can offend
1: anybody. We, we need we need to have. Uh, we are in an energy revolution now, and we need to accelerate that revolution so we get the benefits of cheap, reliable, safe energy. And safe energy means we're not putting carbon into the atmosphere. So that means we need more renewables, but renewables is not the total answer. Right. We're gonna, that's why I'm such a strong believer in uh, advanced nuclear uh, generation. And as we move from the internal combustion engine to the all-electric engine, we're going to need more electricity. Where is it going to come from? We need to think about this. Uh And there are immense economic opportunities here. We're going to see, after long delays, the development, I think, of a vibrant offshore wind industry in this country, both on the East Coast and on the west Coast. The East Coast is ahead now in terms of development the west coast, but the West Coast will, well, is coming up with new technologies to deal with deeper water. And we need that and that electricity will be relatively close to the load centers, which is a complicated way of saying that's where the electricity is needed and where it'll be used, right. Do, do you think we have the political will
0: to make those investments?
1: Uh, not, right now, we don't quite have the political will because we need to do more. A lot of this is taking place in the private sector, is uh, uh, is getting getting there. But some of the developments that we see with uh, uh, where senators are recognizing we have to address climate change, and Republican senators are taking a leading role here. That is terrific. You wouldn't have seen that three or four years ago. Yeah. So I think we're we're beginning to see that, and. Uh, If we have in the uh, election coming up in 2020, and one thing I did learn about making predictions, I follow (laughs) the the sage advice of New York City's best philosopher. He said, Making predictions is hard. You're talking about the future, and it ain't here yet.
0: (laughs) Yogi Berra. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, we need Yogi.
1: Where is he and, when we need him? Uh, we, so who knows what's going to But we need yeah. to come together and recognize some of the things that we need to do. We need to protect our, our public lands. We need to get more people who will bring their sons and daughters out and teach them how to, safe, how to hunt safely, how to fish, uh, and get more people outdoors. That doesn't mean that everybody... Uh, uh, has to fish and hunt but a few more fishermen and a few more hunters and a few less golfers would be a good thing for this country (laughs) now i know i'll get all sorts (laughs) of i write mail from the golfers
0: you couldn't have picked a better thing because very often on this podcast when i talk about how hard elk hunting is i say well if it was easy they'd call it golf (laughs) I did, those of you listening, I did not tell Ted to use golf. I I pick on golfers all the time, so it makes me laugh. I I, I would think of what might happen if
1: we could get our golfer in chief to see (laughs) green more than just a golf course. Yeah. I don't think he's ever been in a national park, and I'm sure he's never camped
0: out. Uh, Probably not would be my guess, but... I, yeah. And, you know, take him on a hike. I, I I have an open invitation to anybody, any elected leader, want to go on a hunt, I'll, I'll take you. So far, I've been... Uh, Hell, I'm it, running it, for office with that, that invitation. There you go. Well, Ted, you've got the open invitation. Uh, I've had two people who've said, when my schedule allows, I'm taking you up on it. And they're both senators. Uh, Senator Martin Heinrich from okay, New Mexico. Okay, yeah, amazing! great. I like Martin a lot, yes. And actually, Senator Steve Daines here from Montana. Okay, good, yeah, Steve. Yeah. And Steve has done a lot of good things here, too. Yeah, and so it's...
1: Uh, and he's been a big supporter of LWCS. Yeah,
0: he has. So, uh, Went and talked to him about but it. I, maybe if we could round up three or four more, we'd just have an elk camp, the, yeah. the Senate elk camp. I'd be glad to host it. Oh, that's, what a great <laughs> idea. What a great idea. <laughs> but, Ted, I, I've held you a long time. I, I want to wrap it up with a couple other questions. Um, you've been very involved with the Wilderness Society. Uh, they have a great track record of helping conserve some of our wildest, just remarkable lands. Uh, do you see it likely that we're going to be able to conserve and expand the, the footprint of these conserved wild places? Because as you mentioned earlier, we have this growing population. We always will. It. Does that growth, and this kind of seems the, the attitude that comes with it at times, does that preclude protecting and conserving additional wild lands in the, in the way that the Wilderness Society looks at it? I don't
1: think so, um, for a number of reasons. One of which is that we are seeing a shift in how people like to live. Mm-hmm. Lots of people like, and I'm probably even an example of that, what's a country boy like me living in, in New York City? And there are times when I get very frustrated there, but uh, there are a lot of things you can do. There's a lot of activity. It's easy to travel to other parts of the world, and there are fascinating people there. Uh, and increasingly, we're seeing that people like we are a social species, um, and the movement from rural America to more developed areas, and we're seeing that even in this city, where a lot of people are coming, even out of California, but they're going to Bozeman because it's attractive, offers a way of life. Right. But they're not going to live in the remoter parts of uh, Montana. They're going to come to a place where uh, there are good jobs, good restaurants, etc. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that means that those same people are going to see the wilderness, and they want to see more of it. And if we have the right kind of political leadership. Yes, we can absolutely increase uh, wilderness areas. Wilderness study areas can be moved from study areas to to be designated uh, as wilderness. And one of the things that the Wilderness Society, in my opinion, and I'm obviously biased, I guess, because I've worked for them, does a really good job building coalitions to get support in a state for a particular area to be declared a wilderness, because the political process is if the state uh, or people within the state aren't in favor of it doesn't mean you get everybody as we've seen but um, and then we still have uh, the incredible tool that a president uh, should have and that is uh, the uh, ability to designate national monuments. Mm-hmm. Look at the national monuments that over time have been created. Think of how darn lucky we are to have them. And if they had that designation, whether it be Grand Canyon or Crater Lake, uh, we are very, or Devil's Monument, we're very lucky to have them. Otherwise, they'd have been destroyed.
0: Right. Somehow they would have been commercialized, probably. Yeah, look
1: at all the mining interests that wanted to mine around Grand Canyon. They yeah. still do.
0: Yeah. Well, it's good to know that you think that there's, there is that optimism that with hard work and some thought, uh, wild places can be conserved because I, I'm one of those guys who, when I look at a map, I look for where are the fewest roads Yes. and put my backpack on and my rifle and we're back there, Alcotton or whatever. And so those places are special to me, um, If you had a shotgun or a rifle in your hand and you could go anywhere you want, where would that be? Well,
1: uh, uh, um, that's relatively easy. I think that hunting wild birds is one of the most exciting things. I love hunting sharp-tailed grouse behind dogs. Uh I'll walk all day long. (laughs) My wife will come out with me, and she'll walk all day long. She probably won't shoot. She'd be a fine wing shot if she wanted to, but she'd she'd rather play tennis and bicycle, I guess. But she loves walking across that country, watching good dogs. Uh, uh, I occasionally have gone out. I've brought friends out to hunt up at Geyser. Uh, Yeah and he'd go out uh and when we were on a ranch, I could just figure out where the huns and the sharptail were uh almost without a dog and I could just figure it out and just point them up and you'd go up a little coolie whoop uh, they go and i just i just love that and when it comes to fishing, any kind of fishing is good but i love <laughs> uh i love uh, you know the the uh some of the places I really like, I like fishing. Uh, one of my absolute favorite places when I'm allowed to, to go there courtesy of a friend is shoot, shooting on the Red Rock, uh, which has got immense, big... You have to work really hard to catch a trout under 20 inches there, mm-hmm. and they're just big monsters there. And I remember once putting on... was working with a friend and a guide, and he said, put on this Chernobyl fly, big, ugly, <laughs> yellow thing. And I said, No fish oh, yeah. is gonna go after that, just try it. So I put it down and, and I cast it down I it was just a short cast right next to the bank, uh and the cast went maybe fifteen feet right where somebody was saying, and whammo, there was just an eruption. The guy who was standing there damn near jumped out of his skin, and, and I was startled. <laughs> and then I had it on, I was trying fumbling with my line, trying to stop, it. and he just went for a windfall, that, and, and I couldn't stop it. Well, lost it. Uh. But that's, you know, that kind of And when it comes to hunting, big game. Uh, why well, I love to hunt deer, love to eat. There's no finer outdoor activity than elk hunting yeah i mean i just think that that is the uh walk walking around trying to figure out where they are and when i'll describe an elk hunt i went with uh the guy who uh, still leases some of my land who'd been the uh uh really took care of the 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 ranch and the partnership we had fantastic guy and we'd been We'd seen a couple of big bulls, and we tried to get close to him, and I thought we were going to get close enough uh, to get a shot and I've always enjoyed hunting with him because he doesn't bother with the fancy clothes. He wears a pair of uh, boots that are that are easy to walk in, a pair mm-hmm. of blue jeans, and his big black cowboy hat that, uh, but he gets, <laughs> he gets really close to him, and we were we thought they were him, and all of a sudden. The, uh, the bull spooked. We didn't know what the heck it was. And then we saw racing below us, because uh, we'd gotten upwind of it, unbeknownst, a mule deer. Uh. And the mule deer spooked him. So we looked around for him, couldn't find him. Then then he got me within 20 feet of a pair of spikies. And I, he looked at me, he said, Do you want them? I said, no, no. Uh, but that would have been meat. But yeah. we didn't. So then the... Uh, uh, Next day, we didn't see much. And then on the last day, we tried another place, and we were glassing and glassing. It was just very early in the morning, and uh, he finally spotted some. I said, where? He said, over there. there, There's a a couple of bulls. And so we went way downwind and crawled on our hands and knees and and keeping. uh, We finally got up, and we were beginning to get close to them. And damned if we didn't spook up another elk. We didn't even know about it. And they, we just froze. That elk went running into the, all the others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they all settled down. And then he said, Well, do you want to go right or do you want to go left? And I said, Look, Jake, you know this country better than I do. What do you think? He said, I think we should go right. So we went up and we waited on a sort of ridge. And they hoped they were going to come around, they'd come down. And we waited and we waited. And sure enough, they started to come down. And then one uh, started to come down. And by that time, I'd been sitting, not moving, for a long time. And I was shaking so much, I thought, I'm not going to be able to shoot. (laughs) (laughs) So I moved very slowly, very carefully, to a little small evergreen. uh, And I just sort of got ready. But I could hold the gun right next and hold it. Uh, my hand underneath, holding on to the evergreen, and it got down, so it was about 220 yards, and I had a shot that was, uh, I thought was going to be, should be good, and I took it, and the elk just dropped, and and Jake Jake said, good shot, and I said, damn lucky, because had I been away from that tree, I would have shaken and shivered so much, (laughs) there's no way I would have gotten it.
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, elk have a tendency to do that. Uh-huh. But there's, there's no
1: finer sport than hunting elk. I just, uh, I just love hunting elk. Yeah. Wow. Well. I mean, I've hunted uh, Cape Buffalo in Africa, uh-huh. uh, uh, and I, I enjoy that. That's fun. I've shot, I've shot greater and lesser kudu, uh, which I think which are fun because they're, they live in tough country. Full of thorns, hmm. one of which is thorn is called. Wait a bit, because it'll manage to hook your clothes.
0: Okay, <laughs> appropriately <laughs> named, and so forth. But uh, elk hunting is—I uh, think that's uh, that's that's the finest there is. Well, when you said Red Rocks, you're, are you referring to here in Montana? Yes. Yeah. yeah, my son drew one of the five Shires moose tags for Red Rocks in two thousand sixteen. Wow. So we went down there, and it is such a remarkable place. And all I could think about is how wonderful it is that somebody decided, you know, these birds are in trouble, the swans. We need to conserve this unbelievable landscape of southwest Montana called Red Rocks the Centennial Valley. Yeah, it's a, it's a gorgeous place. And so because of this bird and some people who said you know, I think birds are important too. We have unbelievable moose hunting there, unbelievable fishing, unbelievable waterfowl hunting. During his uh, moose hunt, we're standing there and we hear elk bugling up on the ridge above us. There's pronghorn there. There's grizzly bears. If you told me I had to pick one place in Montana where I was going to Hunt, or I could only hunt one place every year. That that, that would that be would right be a, there, and and that was going into that
1: valley the first time. Uh, uh, I went in with uh, somebody who was helping trying to find ranch land. We were flying all over the state. In those days, it was it was a lot cheaper. You know, chartering a yeah. <laughs> little plane now <out>, expensive. Uh, <laughs> Phil Tawney, and you may have yeah. known Phil. Yeah, and we went in. <clears throat> And I was driving, and all of a sudden, there was the most extraordinary noise I've ever heard. And I stopped the car, rolled down the window, and there were a couple of sandhill cranes looking at us, giving that wonderful sort of clack-clack noise. Mm-hmm. It just, and I said, I had never seen a sandhill crane before, oh. but I knew what it was. Yeah. Well, and they lived in our little valley on in, in, in our ranch. They'd fly up, and mm-hmm. uh, when there were a lot of grasshoppers, watching them stalking around like uh, field marshals, spearing them. <laughs> <That was> great.
0: <laughs> yeah, we the abundance of wildlife we have today, I I think we almost run the risk of taking it for granted. Uh, and I, I I say that because I remember. And I'm only 54, but when I was a youngster growing up, it was a big deal if somebody shot a deer. It, it didn't yeah. buck, though. No, it didn't. It was, you, they paraded you up and downtown, and all the adults in town, boy, you were you were somebody. You got a deer. And now... Uh, you know, have, that's, that's true. It's, ama- it's an amazing recovery of the white-tailed deer. Yeah, uh,
1: and, and we we see that back in uh, in New York. And the other recovery, which is is amazing, and here's where State Fish and Wildlife did a brilliant job, is the restoration
0: of the wild turkey. Yeah, we had none back east. None. Really? None? Wow. Well, you got them now. Yeah, we sure do. Yeah, and I think about uh, when I was a kid. I remember running into the house. It was probably October and I told my dad, I said, I just heard a flock of geese fly over the house. He's like, nah, those, those, you got to go west over into North Dakota where there aren't many geese. Well, now we got goose crap on yeah. every doorstep and golf course in urban America. But
1: well, now, a, now you've got me thinking about bird hunting because I love the <laughs> short tail. But I also, there, there's two other birds that I just love to shoot. One are rough grouse because oh, they make a fool out talking. of me every damn time. <laughs> you know, I, I, they, they can humble you very quickly mm. and more than once I've had a rough grouse get up very close to me and I couldn't see the darn thing. I could hear it but where is it? Where is it? <clears throat> and the other ones that I love to shoot particularly if you've got a little water hole is uh, uh, in the afternoon, they've been feeding. Is the morning doves coming in the morning hole and they, they can zig and chink. Oh, and,
0: they make you look like a fool. Yeah. I, 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 I'm excited because I'm going to Arizona the first week of September and dove season opens September 1st. I've oh, got, I'm jealous. I've, Boy. I've got three days before my friend's antelope hunt starts that the doves, well, I say they're in trouble. Really. Uh, It will be the sound of conservation as I shoot and miss and shoot and miss and know that all of my excise taxes are helping fund conservation. uh, Well, you know, but that's something that hunters do. uh,
1: And another example of that is when they increase the sales tax in Arkansas, So more money could be given to wildlife. Yeah. Where we in the hunting community have said, yes, we want to pay money because we want to protect. That's what's important. And sometimes we do
0: that pretty damn well. Yeah. No, I think about in 1937 when Pittman Robertson was passed, how hard it would have been to go to a farmer in the dirty 30s and say, you know, wildlife needs a break here. And trying to convince that person that's trying to scratch out a living in the hardest of times but yet landowners pitched in and did a little bit hunters said yeah it's tough times but let's tax ourselves it's that was a I I often wonder could Pittman Robertson pass today in, in our climate of who we are today would something as valuable be could we possibly convince That's a
1: really interesting question. I, I think we could do it if we really said here's why we've got to do it and here's how people are going to benefit. And if we couple that some money to take kids out of the cities and teach them how to shoot. Yeah. Uh that that you know little little programs that do that and shoot uh, and and uh, uh one of the things that you know we, we can talk a little bit about uh, gun regulations and all that stuff. As a New Yorker, obviously, I believe in it because you know we got, but well, we're doing a pretty good job. But let's let's do it uh, the right way. Uh, in New York and Massachusetts, it's illegal for any child under the age of twelve to shoot a shotgun or a rifle. Now, I remember I was shooting rifles when I was ten years old. Was taught very. Carefully and very clearly how to do it. It was a small, short uh, 22. And it gave me the confidence that I could do it. I knew how to do it. Yeah. And I probably even shot a shotgun, a little. uh, And. Let's expose kids while they can while they still have that
0: wonderful curiosity. Yeah. But it's gotta be done the right way. Yeah. Okay. Well, I remember my son, eight years old, I think it was, just north of town here. Uh we were hunting ducks one cold November and I take a shot, I missed. Uh and the little wisp of uh gunpowder kinda on a cold morning worked its way out of that hot barrel. And he kinda leans over and Dad, I really love the smell of gunpowder, <laughs> And I thought, all right. So he's now by far a better shot than I will ever be with a shotgun. But he he was doing that at about age eight and nine, and I'm I'm thankful he's yeah. Had I think take him out, of the,
1: you know I've I've got a grandchild who's nine, and when he's ten, I'll take him out. I can't. I'm not going to break him. But he'll walk the fields carrying a little a 28-gauge shotgun, which won't be loaded, mm-hmm. and I will check him for his field manners. Yeah. And he can bring it up if it's a, a bird that he could shoot and practice, but I can't even allow him to shoot clay pigeons. Really? No. You wow. can't shoot the gun, period. And anyway. huh. that's, that's, that's where the people um, who are... You know, sometimes we see gun legislation that's passed that doesn't... My, my favorite was when uh, Governor Cuomo wanted to be first getting a uh, gun regulation... Which we need. I'm a. i am really want to see it. Believe in uh, you know uh, thorough background checks and, and things of that sort. Uh, uh, you know, we have a uh, an amendment that allows you to have a gun, mm-hmm. but with a, that amendment comes responsibility, mm-hmm. and we've got to make sure that people act and can act in a responsible way. So he passed a uh, legislation that wasn't really well written, and I before long I got a a, a note from the uh, uh, New York City uh, uh, Firearms uh, Bureau saying, if you have any rifles that have a thumbhole in them, you have to register them uh, as an assault rifle. I said, that's lunacy. So uh-huh. I called up the sergeant, uh, who I didn't know. I said, uh, hi, I'm Ted Rosal. I do have guns that have a, a, a thumbhole in them. I understand the way this is written, that I have to register them as assault weapons. I said, how can a bolt-action rifle be deemed an assault weapon? And he paused for a moment. Well, sir, that's what the law says. The people writing the law didn't know anything about that. What they meant was any semi-automatic.
0: Right. They didn't say that. Right. Wow. We, uh, I think we could think of all kinds of laws that get written by people who don't have yeah, no,
1: that's right. practical applications. and that that hurts us because we need to get. And that's where I think that the hunting community needs to be more proactive in making sure that we get good gun regulations, not stupid
0: gun regulations. Yeah. Do uh, uh, last last uh, question, um, and this is just. It's fishing season for me right now. My wife says we have tax season, fishing season, and hunting season. Uh, clean water act. Growing up, uh, the, uh, there was a paper mill upstream uh, in International Falls. And I remember as a kid, we'd go and catch walleyes uh, below the dam, all the way to Lake of the Woods. But there was a warning, do not eat these fish. Yeah. Now, and over my life, it seems like our water quality got better every year of my life until recently. Now it seems like recently there's people say, we got to change the Clean Water Act. But none of, I don't, maybe I'm wrong, but none of them are putting forth ideas to make water cleaner. No, they're not. They're, they're
1: Again, this is a short-sighted attitude um, that... um Less government regulation is always better. Well, I work in the markets industries, and having a strong SEC, and I would argue today it's not as effective as it should be, having a good, effective capital markets is very important. It adds probably three-quarters of a percent, a percent to our GDP every year, because we can move money back and forth and use it more efficiently. But if we didn't have uh, uh, good regulation... Nobody could invest in the markets because there'd be too much uh, theft going on or people would sell water stock. Government regulation is as simple. We need government regulation that governs driving. We need government regulation all over the place. And the libertarians who suggest that you know the only uh, government regulation you need is less and it's always better, <laughs> come on. Just read your American
0: history. Yeah, well, I am thankful that Somewhere along the way, America had the resolve to come up with the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water that, Act. That, that, and that, that was great. And, and uh, if you recall at the time that
1: that was passed uh, by President Nixon. Yeah. Now, President Nixon wasn't a particularly uh, good conservationist, but he knew something that was good. He could read the politics, and Muskie at the time uh, was championing clean air and clean water. And Nixon said, I'd better get on that bandwagon too, and he did, and I'm glad he did. We got NEPA, yeah. uh, and we got the Clean Air, Clean Water Act, and those have been immensely
0: beneficial to us. Yeah.
1: And we shouldn't weaken them.
0: No, that's why when people say we got to change this I always say well how are we going to make it better Yeah, and usually it's not their intention we have to make same, it better. And we have
1: the same uh, argument around the Endangered Species Act and you know give me a break. You yeah. know that that we, we want to protect those and, and look at some of the things we've done around the endangered the bald eagle has come back because right. we got rid of DDT.
0: Yeah. Well I'm happy to see uh, bald <laughs> eagles and we see lots of them. Yeah. Well I've kept you a long time is there any last Ideas, you'd want to leave an audience of activist hunters and anglers who... Opening day of the hunting season, get out there. (laughs) (laughs) You heard it here from Ted Roosevelt. This is his his directive. Get out there. Oh, man. Do do you ever feel responsibility of... uh, this is maybe not a question you want to answer, but when you have your name and your family and your legacy and someone of, as you call them, the lion. uh, The old lion. The old lion. Do you ever feel a a burden of that? Or is it just, this is who I am and this is what I do? Well, I'll tell you a
1: story uh, about it. Uh, um, When I was seven, I guess I was 18. I just graduated from high school And I'd accepted a job to work for the Bureau of Land Management in Wyoming. Whoa. And I was going out to Wyoming, driving from... We started in uh, 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 New York. Uh, My friend lived in New York, and and my parents had a farm in Philadelphia, so I went there, and we picked up, and we started driving. By the time we got to uh, Indiana, <clears throat> I said, this is going to take us a long time to go out there. We're on the Indiana turnpike, and next thing you know, I was going 80 miles an hour, and the speed limit was 60. <laughs> well, I got pulled over and got arrested, uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, and had to pay a... Uh, fine to the justice of the peace. And what can I say? Your Honor, i is wrong. I did this. So we were... uh, Then we, by that time, we were in Iowa. Where do we... We had a choice. We could sleep in a motel or we could eat. Well, an 18-year-old belly was going to win that day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll sleep in the car. We rolled up the windows after eating a bunch of, uh, you know... uh, Poor men, uh, you know, uh-huh. the, the uh, poor boys, that was not feasible. We <laughs> rolled down the windows. And oh, my God. Uh, the mosquitoes came in, and we were. We, this was just terrible. Uh-huh. So then I remembered reading a Time magazine that you could go to a local jail and explain if you had a plight like this, uh, and you could spend the night in the jail. So we went and found a local jail and we explained that we needed a place to spend the night away from the mosquitoes and could we sleep in the, in the jail. He said, yeah, but there's no, uh, there's no mattresses here. There's just nothing but a you know bare bench. We said, that's fine. We've got our sleeping bags. So we, he said, okay, I'll put you in. And then he shot his hand and he said, he's about ready to lock his hand. I'll let you out at 6 tomorrow morning. That's fine. Uh, and then uh, he said, I need to register you. I need to know your name. So my friend said, I'm John Kaiser. And I thought to myself, do I dare tell him my name? <laughs> so uh, I did, because uh, I say he might ask for my ID or something. Mm-hmm. And I said, I am Theodore Roosevelt Fourth. He shut the door and he said, Good night, Mr. Fourth. <laughs> so, you know what? Doesn't make a damn <laughs> bit of difference.
0: <laughs> oh, that's a great story. <laughs> oh thanks for sharing that one that didn't go where i thought you were going with it <laughs> uh, well Ted, i can't thank you enough for your time i know your travel schedule is busy and logistics of getting here and you probably got some fishing or something well to we do. owe a, a great thanks to
1: rob who got us together
0: yeah yeah rob his
1: new card looks pretty impressive
0: yeah joint yeah, joint yeah, mission. this is pretty good yeah Speaking and, and Ted is referring to a friend who's been here watching us talk, keeping us in line, uh, Rob Sisson. Uh, but anyhow, folks, I'm going to let you go because uh, we got to get to a dinner. And uh, thank you so much, Ted. I I can't thank you enough. And thanks for your advocacy for all things related to conservation and public lands and clean air, clean water, and wild
1: places. Great. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, uh, I don't know quite what to expect, but I dare say there will be some some surprises. (laughs) There always is. Thanks for listening, folks.